from the song we have just sung, the last stanza says, And the Lord, and Lord haste the day when faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Have you ever thought and wondered where that phrase comes from? The clouds be rolled back as a scroll? Well, it comes from the passage that we will be reading today, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 34 and 35. As you open God's Word to Isaiah chapter 34 and 35, I want to tell you about a, um, Lance Armstrong. He's a well-known uh, cyclist. He was a seven-times winner of the famous uh, French uh, Tour de France. Um, at one point, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he wrote the following reflection from the time when he battled cancer. He said, I asked myself what I believed. I had never prayed a lot. I hoped hard, I wished hard, but I didn't pray. I had developed a certain distrust of organized religion growing up, but I felt I had the capacity to be a spiritual person and to hold some fervent beliefs. Quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person, and that meant fair honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believed that should be enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hoped I would be judged on, what, on whether I had lived a true life, not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I'd, I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what, you're right, fine, end of quote. Lance Armstrong's reply reveals his ignorance of what God says about the destiny of those who reject God, about the destiny of those who try to think of even of that day of judgment on their own terms. This morning, the text we will read tells us of two destinies that God prepares for the entire world. There are only two destinies. And in the passage we will read, these destinies are clearly described so that we do not live in ignorance of what these destinies are. So I encourage you to open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 34. We'll read from verse 1 all the way to chapter 35, the end of the chapter, verse 10. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we uh, encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage in our pew Bibles on page number 594. Here's God's Word for us this morning. Draw near, O nations. To hear and give attention, O peoples, 
Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise, and mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and the young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom. And its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet the hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gather, gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come 
and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And, the, and sh- then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for us this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation that you give us of your plans, of what you will do at the end of the age. Father, help us to hear well. Help us to pay attention. And Father, we pray that this message would be not only a message for our hearing, but a message for all the nations. We pray this morning that this universal message of warning would be loud and clear in our ears. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us feet who are ready to walk and respond to your ways. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. Friends, we have been in this section of the book of Isaiah, this third section that started with chapter 28 and so far in this third section we have seen messages of warnings messages of aha or ah we have seen so far five of these messages uh, directed to the people of Judah and the people of Israel and the sixth message which started in chapter 33 was directed towards the destroyer towards the enemy of God's people. And in that context, in in the time of Isaiah, this was directed against the people of Assyria. We saw last week that message of, of warning against God's enemies in Isaiah's time. In the rest of this message of warning, in chapter 34 and 35, we see the warning now expanded not only to the enemy at the time of Assyria's uh, history, but now God gives a message of warning to all the nations. In chapter 34, God addresses not only one nation, but all the nations of the earth. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. And if that is not clear, look at the second part of verse 1. Let the earth hear and all that fills it. The world and all that comes from it. In other words, the message, this sixth message in this section of Isaiah that initially was directed to one enemy of God, Assyria, 
now is expanded to all the nations. It's a universal message of warning. God has a universal warning. But as we will see in chapter 35, he also has a universal promise. And the nations are called not only to hear, but to pay attention. Friends, these two chapters present us with two destinies. In the end, they will only be two destinies. And this morning, God wants us to know what each of these destinies will be. The first one, if you like taking notes, the first destiny that we will look at in chapter 34 is the coming wrath of God. The first destiny is the coming wrath of God. Our text begins by declaring plainly what God wants the entire earth to know. What does God want the entire earth to know? God wants the entire earth to know of His coming judgment and the destruction that He will bring against all wickedness and rebellion. This is why God is summoning the entire earth to pay attention and hear the message of the coming wrath of God. Now today, a large majority of people do not like to think or even talk about the coming wrath of God. This is true even among Christians. We, we rarely pay attention to this truth. We're often afraid that if we bring it up, if we bring up the reality of God's judgment, people will not respond to God, or that it will drive people away from God. How many of us, when we share the gospel, how many of us mention the wrath of God against all rebellion? The message of the coming wrath of God is so important, so clear in this chapter, that we have four descriptions of God, what He has to prepare Himself for this coming wrath. And then after these four descriptions of God, we will see what the coming wrath of God will produce and will, will result in. So as we look at the coming wrath of God, let's look at the descriptions we see of God in this chapter. And then we'll look at the outcome, at the result of this wrath. Four descriptions of God in this chapter about the coming wrath. Look at verse 2. Actually, notice in this chapter four times the phrase, for the Lord. There are four descriptions, what the Lord is or what the Lord has as he is describing his wrath. Look at the first one in verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Look at the second for the Lord in verse 6. For the Lord has a sword. Look at the third for the Lord in verse 6 at the end of verse 6. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And then finally, a fourth phrase for the Lord in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. Four times. The Lord is described as preparing himself for this wrath that he's about to bring. Why is God summoning the nations and all the earth to hear and pay attention? Because God wants to warn all the nations, the entire earth of the day that God is preparing. I love how one of the commentators, Barry Webb, said about this chapter, God has put the world on notice that he will not tolerate rebellion or insurrection forever. 
this message of God's judgment is very important for all the earth to hear. They must hear God's warning notice so that when it comes, they will not say, Oh Lord, we didn't know. This was totally by surprise. God wants to give all the earth this warning notice that our rebellion, that our sin will not be overlooked in the end. I love how Francis Schaeffer said in one of his books, our generation needs to be told that man cannot disregard God. That a culture like ours has had such light and then has such and has deliberately turned away. It stands under God's judgment. There's only one kind of preaching that will do in a generation like ours. Preaching which includes the preaching of the judgment of God. But how, what would we say about this coming wrath? What would we include? What would we talk about when we think about the God who is bringing about His wrath? In this chapter, the, the four things that, that we have seen, the for the Lord. Let's look at each of these briefly, just what, what they say about the Lord. Verse 2, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations. Friends, this means that no nation is outside the scope of God's wrath. God has no nationalistic favors. All nations stand guilty as the object of the wrath of God. If we read in verse 3 and 4, not only the nations are in trouble, but all spiritual realities in the heavenly places who have rebelled against God, they too are in trouble. Notice verse 4, all the host of heaven shall rot away. And then in verse 4, the second half, and the skies roll up like a scroll. What a picture of God's power to bring about destruction. Just as ancient books in the form of scrolls, when one finished reading them, you would scroll them up to say you're done. You put up the scroll, put it away. Just in the same way, God is putting before us this picture of the heavens, of the skies being rolled up as a scroll. Why? Because their destiny has come to the end and they're put away. This is the picture that God wants us to have. That the nations, that the heavenly host, that the skies, the creation itself, they all will come to an end. God will put an end to an end all rebellion among the nations, among the spiritual realities, and in the entire creation. The, the second picture we see of God preparing himself for this wrath is that God has a sword. Now, if I would say in, in Texas lingo, it might make more sense for us to say God has a gun. God has a sword. And he's ready to be swung, to let it be used. He's using it in the heavenly realms, and he's bringing it upon the earth. And in verse 5 in particular, it seems that there's one particular place against which God swings his sword, and it's Edom. Now, this is interesting. Why would God say that his sword is ready to be swung and descend upon Edom? 
If anything, in Isaiah's time, we would expect this place to be Assyria. After all, Assyria was the immediate enemy. But here, Isaiah speaks of Edom. Of all the nations, why Edom? Well, the reason is because from the beginning of the Old Testament and from the beginning of the the people of God, when they have been freed from Egypt, Edom is described as the nation that always opposed God and his people. From the very beginning, when the Israelites were traveling from Egypt to the promised land, Edom gave them trouble. As one commentator says, no nation is so consistently hostile to Israel throughout the whole Old Testament as Edom. So that Edom is representing the whole world that stands against God and his people. Now God declares that he brings his sword against those who have opposed God and his people. In verse 6, the judgment of God against Edom is presented not only as a, as a swinging of a, of a sword, but it's also presented as a sacrifice. Notice where the sacrifice is happening. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah. Bozrah is the capital of Edom. In other words, God is going to swing his sword in Edom and its capital. And as, as God's sword of judgment brings and comes down upon Edom, it not only accomplishes destruction, it accomplishes an act of bringing a sacrifice. Now this is puzzling. We may understand the picture of God's judgment as a sword being swung and, and destroying people. But why is God describing this, this scene of slaughter? Why is he describing it as a sacrifice? This picture of God's judgment as a sacrifice tells us something very important about God's judgment. It tells us that God's judgment is rightly deserved because of God's holiness and because of God's rebellion. It also tells us that God's judgment is as natural to God as it is for Him to require sacrifices. Friend, the principle of why God judges our rebellion is the same principle that stands behind the sacrificial system. The same principle of why God would call for lambs to be slaughtered in, in the place of our sin. It is because of the penalty for rebellion against, against our rebellion. The penalty of rebellion against God is death. And God called for the sacrifices to be brought. Why? Because God cannot overlook rebellion. Rebellion, the, the, the penalty for rebellion is death. In God's mercy, God offered the Israelites a way out so they would not have to die for their sin. God told them that instead of dying themselves, they could offer to God the blood of lambs and goats as a substitute for their own blood. The very principle behind the sacrificial system was that God requires blood for rebellion. Now, the blood of lambs and goats was, in the Old Testament, was only a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice that God was going to offer. His only son, Jesus, was the lamb that God put forth so that his blood 
would provide the, the payment for the rebellion of God's people. And through Jesus dying on the cross, God displayed not only His love for us, but also His judgment against our rebellion. Friends, God's judgment is seen whenever a sacrifice is brought forth for our sin. But the people of Edom did not embrace God's offer of forgiveness. They kept opposing God and His people. And because they opposed God and His people, now God is bringing and making them the object of His sacrifice, of His judgment. There's no more substitute for them because they have rejected the substitute that God has provided for them. We either embrace the sacrifice God offers for us in Christ, or at the end of the age, we ourselves will be the sacrifice for our sins. Edom's judgment is presented as sacrifice because they died for their sins. Friends, this, uh, this is the gospel that we are told by God that He provides a substitute. But if we reject Him and the substitute that He provides for us, then our only destiny that we can be certain of is that God will make us a sacrifice in His judgment. The last description of God's judgment in verse 8, for the Lord has provided a day of vengeance. The one who will exercise vengeance is God himself. I love how Ray Ortland says, God wants us to stop and think, what does it mean to live in a universe where God judges evil? And the answer is, God has a day of vengeance set on his calendar. But some of us may think that we can get away with our rebellion or that our continual ignorance of God will be fine in that last day. Just as Lance Armstrong thought, well, so be it. Fine. Let it be so. Oh, friends, we may not realize if we take that approach of, of, of casu- being casual with, with this destiny, we may not realize the consequences of our rebellion of, against God. They are eternal destructive, eternally destructive. The outcome of God's judgment is pictured in several ways. We have seen how how this passage describes God in in four ways, that he has rage against the nations, that he has a sword, that he has a sacrifice, that he has a day of vengeance. But the rest of this chapter also tells us the outcome of God's judgment. The outcome of God's judgment is pictured in several ways. It's pictured as unending destruction. In verse 9, The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Now I ask you, who would like to live in such a land? And if that picture is not bad enough, look at verse 10. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. God's judgment will be unending. The consequences of his destruction will never be exalted. They will never come to an end. In verses 11 through 15, we see another picture of the outcome of God's judgment as a desolate destruction. The picture changes in verse 15, 11 through 15. We see a picture of a habitation where humanity is replaced by animals. 
Instead of humanity possessing the land, the land is possessed by wild beasts and animals and infested with thorns and thistles. This is a picture of an existence that has been abandoned, an existence that has been made empty and desolate. And God himself is described as bringing about this emptiness. Look at verse 11. God being a builder. It's as if God builds this this edifice. But it's really an edifice of emptiness and confusion. And he's putting the line to make sure that that this edifice of destruction is precisely Uh, built up in verse 11 God shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness God will do this act of destruction this destruction will also be certain look at verse 16 and 17 God will be personally involved in bringing about this desolation of creation friends God's wording of judgment presents God as having rage against the nations having a sword to bring destruction, making a sacrifice of the people who refuse God, and having a day of vengeance. And the outcome of God's judgment is a destruction whose effects are without end, a destruction that makes everything desolate and empty, and a destruction that will certainly come because because God will be personally involved in bringing it about. The coming of the wrath of God is the first of the two destinies presented in this message. In chapter 35, the picture changes. And we're presented with a second destiny, the alternative destiny. It's the only other possibility. And the alternative destiny is as good as the opposite extreme was presented. Notice this, the, the extreme transformation the extreme opposites that will happen in chapter 35 of what God's salvation will bring about. The second destiny is God's salvation. Instead of judgment, instead of desolation, instead of unending destruction, God's salvation will bring total transformation. Actually, as we look at what God's salvation will bring, notice three points or three ways in which God's salvation is described in chapter 35. God's salvation will bring joy. God's salvation will bring joy. Notice how this chapter begins. It begins by speaking about the wilderness and the dry land. Both of them were pictures of, of places that, where there's no life. There's no activity. Notice, notice what these, the wilderness and the dry land do in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. In verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. In other words, a creation that has been made desolate will one day rejoice, blossom, and sing. Yes, even creation will sing. Who can make a desert rejoice? blossom and sing naturally such things are impossible for humanity to bring about but such transformations are not impossible with God in verse 2 we see three places mentioned that that you may wonder why mention Lebanon, Carmel and Sharon 
Why would God care to describe these places? Because if you remember earlier in chapter 33, these places were described as being withered away, as being like a desert and shaking off their leaves. But now, in chapter 35, they are presented as receiving back their glory. God's salvation encounters us in our brokenness and plans to transform it. But notice, what will people see when this transformation will come about? What what their attention will be zoomed on is not the glory of these transformed areas, but on the glory of the Lord. Look at verse 2 again. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Friends, sometimes we want God in our lives just so that He can restore our brokenness. I've seen people in the midst of great and deep brokenness who are willing to turn to just about anything for help, even to God. But their hearts may not be really interested in God. Their hearts may just be open to seek some sort of restoration. If the God of of Buddhism or the gods of Buddhism uh, would provide that restoration, they'll turn there. If the God of Islam would provide that, they'll turn there. If the God of Eastern spirituality will provide that restoration, they'll turn there. They're not really interested in the true God. They're just interested in fixing up their lives. Searching for God in that kind of way will be short-lived and will prove empty. God's salvation has a higher aim than simply restoring our brokenness. God's salvation wants to restore us to God and to restore God back to us and to our view of Him. Again, Ray Ortland says so beautifully, joy pervades chapter 35 because salvation is not just when we stop being bad. Salvation is when we delight in God's glory and majesty. Oh, friends, I wonder if we realize that God's salvation deals not only to fix our broken lives, but to fix our lack of wonder and delight in God. God's salvation restores in us the ability to enjoy God and to delight in Him. God wants to save us from being slaves to our own happiness. God wants us, God wants to save us from being slaves to our own happiness and instead to begin delighting in God for who He is. God's salvation not only brings joy, God's salvation, a second subpoint of what God's salvation does, God's salvation brings hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. It's very clear that chapter 35 is written to bring hope to the people of God in the midst of their anxiety and hopelessness. How do I know that? Because of the command God gives in, in verse 3. God says to Isaiah, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Well, this is the audience to which chapter 34 and 35 is written. This is the audience made of people whose hands are weak, those who are tired, those whose knees are feeble, those who can barely stand, those whose hearts are are anxious because they are fearful and hopeless. I wonder if there are any 
among us this morning who fit in any of these categories. The point of these two chapters is to, to strengthen us, to make us firm and fearless in the face of what we see around us. All of us, in some way or another, still live as pilgrims in the wilderness and brokenness of this life. And notice what the message of hope is. Look at verse 4. What is Isaiah supposed to tell these people? Be strong. Be strong. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Why be strong and why fear not? The rest of verse 4. Behold, your God will come. That's why. Behold, your God will come. And when he comes, notice what he will bring. He'll bring vengeance. And he'll bring recompense. The reason why we need to know about the wrath of God, the reason why we need to cherish the the message of the day of God's vengeance is because it can be a, a source of strength for us. Keep hoping in God. The wrongs that you see around you, God will bring vengeance one day. You don't need to bring that vengeance. God is not asking you to make the world right. God is not asking you to fight your battles and make the wrongs right for yourself in your own strength. God will bring that about. Now, surely, we ought to fight for justice. We ought to fight against injustice. Friends, God will bring a day when he will bring his vengeance. And he will bring his recompense. And God's day of vengeance and recompense means not only the wrath of God against all those who have rebelled against him, it's also God's salvation for all those who have embraced him. Oh, friends, I wonder, I wonder this morning if you hold on to this message of hope that God will come. This overarching claim that God will not abandon us to our own wilderness, to our own brokenness. Friends, the hope of the people of God is that God will not leave His people in their bondage. God will not leave His people to be destroyed by the heat of the desert. Well, friends, do you see how different the destiny of God's people is in this passage? Joy, abundance, glory, majesty, God will offer all of these to his people. But in the interim, until he comes, he wants his people to be strong and firm and fearless, looking forward to his return. God wants his people to be filled with hope. But the hope is not based on what God's people experience here and now. No, our hope is based on what God's people will experience when He comes. Friends, the only way we can experience this hope is by faith, by relying on what He says, by trusting in what God will do when He comes. Is there an area in your life where your hands are weak? Are there some among us whose knees are feeble? And I'm not talking about physical knee surgery. I'm not talking about you physically being able to 
stand up. I'm talking about the hands and the knees of your spiritual life. Are there any among us who are overcome by anxiety and fear? Oh, friends, God says, be strong. Be firm. Not because of what you see around you, but because of this reality. Your God will come. And in fighting the challenges among us, some of us are tired, some of us are shaking, some of us are fearful. Oh, dear beloved, be strengthened and be encouraged that our God, your God, will come to bring salvation. God, not only God's salvation, not only brings joy, God's salvation not only brings hope. Thirdly, a third sub-point of this second major destiny is that God's salvation brings transformation. The people whom God saves will be changed. Their condition will change. Look at verse, verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstooped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Oh, friends, there's a reason why many of Jesus' miracles focused on healing the blind, making the deaf hear, and making the lame walk. Why? Because it was intended to show that God sent Jesus to bring about God's salvation, bringing about these transformations. And it's not just about physical healing, but it's about the spiritual reality that all these experiences pointed to. Without Christ, we are spiritually blind. Without Christ, we are spiritually deaf. Without Christ, we are unable to walk. Spiritually, we are dead in our sin. We're unable to sing God's praises. We're unable to be filled with the joy of God. But when we hear the word of Christ, the Spirit brings to us the opening of the eyes, the opening of the ears, so that we can begin to see our sin and to see God's salvation. And the Spirit enables us to respond by, by making us able to stand and walk. God's salvation brings us an inner transformation. Not only will people be changed, but God will bring refreshment for our journey through the wilderness. Look at verse 6. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Friends, this picture reminds us of the journey that the Israelites had in the wilderness. This is not the first time that water broke forth in the wilderness. Remember what happened in the book of Exodus? When the people of God ran out of water in the wilderness? God caused water to come out of rocks. Here Isaiah is using this imagery of the Exodus to reassure God's people that God will provide for them refreshment on their journey as they follow God through the wilderness of this life. They should not complain. They should not become bitter as the Israelites have done, but trust that God will provide the refreshment they need for their spiritual journey if only they would trust in God's Word. I love how Jesus, one point, at one point in His journey on earth, stood up and He said to the audience who was listening to Him in John chapter 7, verse 38, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, 
when the children of God go through the wilderness of their lives, they are no longer looking to circumstances outside of themselves to be the spring of living water. But they're looking to Christ who is now inside of them through the Holy Spirit who resides in believers. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will make a flow of living water to burst out of us. Oh friends, some today, even among believers, are still looking to experiences outside of themselves for refreshment. But if we have Christ in us, who resides in us through the Holy Spirit, the spring of living water is now inside of us. And as we go through the wilderness and through the desert of our lives, water can break forth inside of us because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who brings to us the benefits, the benefits of Christ. But when we fail to focus on Christ, when we look to external sources of refreshment, when Christ becomes not enough for us, we will grow in bitterness and complaining. God's salvation, dear friends, God's salvation brings a transformation to those whom God saves. God's salvation, fourthly, a fourth sub-point of what God's salvation does, is that God's salvation puts us on a path of holiness. God's salvation puts us on a path of holiness. Look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. It's amazing that God's salvation is now described as a, by a picture of a highway. In the Hebrew language, this, this, this word describes a road that is raised up so that all can see it. The point of this picture is to make it clear that God's salvation will be visible and clear. And here's a few characteristics about this highway that God will make appear. The name of this highway is the way of holiness. In other words, the salvation that God offers is a path for those who seek the holiness of God. In verse 8, it says, The unclean shall not pass over it. Now, this does not mean that only perfect people walk on this highway. Rather, it means that those who walk in this highway or on this highway have been cleansed. They have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And verse 8 also says that even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. What a promise! What a promise! The people walking on this highway will persevere. They will persevere. Friends, the way of salvation brings people to be concerned for the holiness of God. And they desire to live holy lives because of who God is. For them, holiness is more important than earthly happiness. Oh, how many people today think that they're Christians, but they're not walking on this way called the highway of holiness. They deceive themselves. They're walking on some other way. God's salvation brings this inner transformation. And God's salvation puts people on a path of holiness. Finally, a final description about God's salvation is that God's salvation brings people back to God. God's salvation brings people back to God. Look at verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The climax of the entire chapter 35 is that God's people will finally make it back to where God intended them to be, in Zion. 
And this is not an earthly city. This is, a, the, this is the place where God dwells, the heavenly Zion. Notice the emphasis in verse 10. It's not simply that God's people will reach their final destination. Notice how God's people will reach Zion. With singing. Remember how the desert is singing in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 10? Now God's people are singing. And they're not just singing. They're singing because of their full with joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and signing shall flee away. I love how the NIV translates this verse. It's slightly different. It says gladness and joy will overtake them. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Friends, when people find their way back to God, and when, when they find God to be satisfying and delightful for who He is, they will come to Him and will be overtaken by joy. From the beginning and end of this chapter, joy permeates the destiny of God's people. Singing characterizes the people of God. Friends, that's why we want you to be singing Christians. That's why we want to practice singing together. That's why when someone says, I don't like to sing, I can sing. My dear friend, the closer you get to Jesus, the more singing you ought to do. So we're just trying to get you ready to be with Jesus. So that when you're ready to meet God, you are going to be a singing Christian. So just be ready for that. It's not about hearing other people sing. It's about the people of God singing together. Because singing is a, a reflection of the joy that comes to God's people because of who they find God to be. Well, friends, from the beginning to the end of this chapter, we see these characteristics. God's people are permeated with joy. God's creation, even the desert and the dry land, are permeated with joy and singing. But the only reason they have this joy is because they have turned away from the path of self-seeking, self-satisfaction, self-reliance, and instead have embraced, have responded to the, to the salvation that God provided. They have surrendered their lives to the God who will judge the living and the dead and who offers salvation. Friends, in this chapter, in these two chapters, we see two destinies. Only two destinies. The coming wrath of God and the coming salvation of God. I like what one commentator said. We, of course, would like to have only one of these realities. Blessings without curse. Salvation without judgment. Heaven without hell. And we are always in danger of rewriting the rules, so to speak, to suit our own inclinations. Dear friends, we cannot ignore either of these two destinies. And we cannot ignore letting people know that both destinies are real. I love what Francis Schaeffer said. People often ask me, what would you do if you meet a really modern man on a train and you had just an hour to talk to him about the gospel? Francis Schaeffer said, I would spend 45 or 50 minutes on the negative to show him his real dilemma and to show him that he is more dead than he even thinks he is. That he's not just dead in the 20th century meaning of dead, not having significance in life, but that he is morally dead because he is separated from the God who exists. Then 
the 45 or 50 minutes of drilling that home, then I would take 10 or 15 minutes to tell him the gospel. Friends, you consider, you consider that thought. How many of us talk about the good news and never even mention why people should listen to this great news? They don't, they don't know of the wrath of God that is coming. They don't know of the judgment of God. We're afraid that if we focus on that, it'll drive people away. Friends, may I tell you the first great awakening that God had in this land. God used a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. God used that sermon to bring about the first and greatest awakening in this land. If we lack confidence or if we somehow think that we just don't need to focus on that message of warning, and that somehow we are doing God a favor by not including that, just remember these two chapters. God makes that warning so clear. He wants all the nations to hear. He wants everyone on the earth to know about it. He wants everything that fills the earth to know and pay attention to the coming wrath. And only in light of that will it make sense for them to hear of the greatness and the amazing riches of God's grace in his salvation. Oh, friends, May we never be embarrassed to talk about the coming wrath of God. And may we be clear about the two destinies that God puts before us. Run from God now, and you will encounter him as a judge then and without hope. Run to God now, and you will find him as your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a great judge. You are a great avenger. Nothing will escape the scrutiny of your amazing eye against all evil and rebellion. You have told us in your word that you will be personally involved in bringing about your wrath against all evil, against all rebellion, against all who have ignored you. Father, you also tell us in your word that you offer a rich and a glorious and a transforming salvation to those who turn to you. Father, you have told us of how great and merciful and rich this salvation is. Lord, would you enable us by your Spirit to have eyes to see it, to have ears to hear it, to have knees to walk towards it, and to have hearts able to embrace it. We pray that you would show your power among us and help us to be clear. Help us to live in light of these two destinies. And may your people be faithful to you and put our hope and full strength in you. In the name of Christ we pray.